Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. talk to you about the kingdom of God, and I'm going to probably talk about uh, uh, a lot of different things here. I've been, uh, I sent out feelers to see if I can get some response as to what the topics want I have, uh, are wanted by others. I already had some information that uh, I had been putting together from my interaction with lots of different people uh, throughout throughout the week. There is just no easy. There is just no easy way to talk about the kingdom to people who are under a strong delusion. One individual asked me to talk about uh, a quote that we had from the last show, I think, or one of the last shows that uh, where we were talking about uh, revelations, and uh, I had quoted from Revelations, evidently uh, in. Uh, uh, 1823, where it talks about sorceries were all, were all nations deceived by thy sorcery. All nations were deceived. The Greek word is pharmaki that is translated sorceries, which means the use of an administrating, uh, administering of drugs. To some degree, that's what it meant. And there was a pharmakia back in those ancient times like i've pointed out one of the first uh, martyrs or one of the early martyrs of the church was actually a dentist who was uh, executed for practicing medicine without a license because because as a christian he was able to heal people simply by touching them simply by being uh, treating them for dental problems, which I I'm, I really am not absolutely clear what dentistry was like in those days. I pointed out the fact that the same symbol for the pharmacia in those days, the medical society in those days, is really the same symbol that we see often associated with the medical societies these days. And uh, that that medical society back then had the same kind of power over people. And it's a little bit why people are always going to uh, revelations is they want to get an edge. Everybody, we, we are covetous of our own life. And nothing is more likely to take away our life than illness or catastrophe. And anything that might take away our life is important to us. So therefore, people are interested in revelations. People are interested in, uh, you know, going to doctors and taking medicines because that's what they're offering. They're saying that our medicine will save you, will protect you. And uh, the same reasons why people vote, get involved in politics, is because they believe that... Uh, this will save them, protect them, provide for them in ways that uh, they can't provide for themselves. Uh, the, the word pharmakia had lots of mixes 
back in those days. Yet it does have something to do with the use or administrating of drugs. But you know, one of the biggest drug factories there are in the world is sitting on the top of your shoulders. It's your head. <laughs> your head produces drugs. It, it does it through all the industry of your own body. But it's your mental processes that are the triggering agent for a huge drug manufacturing factory that's within your own body. And so what goes on in your mind is going to drug you. I mean, hormones, that's a drug. Fear produces drugs. Uh, you know, adrenaline. These are all drugs that you're producing in your own mind and in your own body uh, through the activities in your mind. And which is one of the reasons why the Bible tells us to be still. They're talking about being still in our mind. And, you know, if you've listened to the shows on the tree of knowledge, that's your mind. That's your brain. That's actually your whole body because you don't just think with your brain. It's all connected to your nervous system. And the tree of knowledge is you, eating of the tree of knowledge is you deciding for yourself what is good and evil with the mechanisms of your own mind, which can be drugged. I mean, the, the mind itself can drug the mind by causing activities within your own body and cause you to think a particular way. So, pharmacia imagery of TV, of the movies, can produce drugs in your body. It doesn't all have to be in a test tube and in a syringe bottle and in a pill bottle. There's all kinds of things that, that has to do with pharmacia that poisons your system. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lists this where it will. It will enter into you and guide you. Because the same body, the same tree of your existence. Trees were sources in the old Hebrew language. It was, it was, trees were a source of fruit. It was a source of building materials. It was a source of wood for fires. Uh, it was a source for wood for building. It was a source, and the tree of knowledge is the source of your knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of life is the source of your life. That's the way Hebrew language works. That's what they're talking about there. They're not actually talking about a tree with roots and branches and leaves, and etc. They're, because that's not the way the Hebrew language worked. Almost everything that had a physical identity... Uh, every word that gave you, you know, a representation of some sort of physical object also had a more abstract metaphoric definition for it, uh, for that same exact three-letter Hebrew word. And that's the way the Hebrew language worked. It was based on symbolism. It, it, the letters themselves were symbols of the idea that the letters were trying to represent or convey. In that way, in uh, 
our modern language, although we do have some words that seem to catch on where the sound itself carries with it elements of the meaning of the word. But in Hebrew, the actual letters, which were not designed, the words were not designed with letters in order to be pronounced. You know, there were like Indian languages where they they created their own alphabet. And they did this after they saw, you know, the regular English alphabet. They created their own alphabet to represent sounds in their own language. They produced a lot more letters, but they were doing this pretty much from scratch to write down their own language. And so, therefore, the letters they created represented sounds, and those sounds strung together, were you were able to determine the actual Indian language so that you could read and and learn the language just based on the print once you understood the sounds that each of those letters were making. But that's not what Hebrew is. Hebrew wasn't a language being spoken and somebody decided to write it down. The Hebrew language was created from the actual pinning of the language because the language itself is a code. And each letter had a meaning and they would group these meanings to produce these three-letter words. And then when they wanted to expound upon that word, much as you do with Chinese and Japanese writings, they will take a, a basic word like for a building and then they will add another stroke of the pen or two strokes of the pen to change that word for building into the word for temple or the word for building into the word for barn or the word for building into the word for house. But the, those strokes have nothing to do with the sounds of the words. The words are constructed completely separate from the sound. So even though you don't know Chinese, if you knew Japanese, you might be able to read Chinese fairly quickly because some of the symbols are similar. Once you learn the symbols, you can read the language. But Hebrew is a combination of an alphabet and this idea of these strokes having a meaning. Each of the letters had a meaning and they put them together. And even even the letters themselves are composed of other letters where they have two or three strokes that produce a letter which each of those strokes by themselves are actually a part of another letter. So, when you devise a language like that from the actual writing of the language, you create the language. When you go to read the language, it is automatically going to focus on representative symbolism in the production of words. So, therefore, a tree is not necessarily an actual tree with roots and branches and leaves, but is a symbol for the idea of a source. So, where do you get your source 
Is it from your own mental processes, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The source of the knowledge of good and evil is from your own personal deciding mental capacity? Or is it the tree of life, life being the breath of God, the Holy Spirit of God? This is this question is still the foundational question of all belief in the God of creation. Is where are you getting? Where is your source? Now a lot of people want to look at the the things that I write and want to know where's your source. And, and I in, in our, my bio it, it makes a reference to. Uh, the fact that uh, I am aware of hidden writings that have been kept secret from the people. I'm aware of this because I know people who have gone and read many of these writings. And they sat down and talked with me many, many years ago, back in the 60s, early 60s, and told me about some of these writings. Offered me a chance to go to the Vatican Library and actually read some of these writings. Of course, I wasn't quite ready. I was just learning Latin and Greek and and uh, other languages at the time. So, you know, I, there wouldn't have been much for me to read there. Although I was at that time reading things in in Latin and beginning to read things in Greek. But uh, I was pretty young. But they talked about me going there and getting access to the Vatican Library. But I didn't really need to get access to that. I didn't know it at the time. I found that a fascinating offer. But the things that I learned while I was attending that St. Joseph's College way back in the early 60s led me to understand other things and then of course but actually what I really understand and that understanding has been confirmed by the Bible is that God is not going to build this church based on your reading of the Bible because your reading of the Bible is the tree of knowledge because it is your intellectual pursuit of the truth. That's what you're doing when you're reading the Bible. Now you may be also doing something else when you read the Bible. You may be listening to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is guiding your interpretation of the Bible. If your brain is in, is determining what you're reading in the Bible... That's your private interpretation, and the Bible is not given to private interpretation. If you try to privately interpret with your own brain, with your own tree of knowledge, the Bible, you can come up with all kinds of goofy ideas. I mean, it's it's just unbelievable what you can come up with. I mean, you can justify mass murder. You can justify rape, robbery. Uh, covetous practices. You can justify almost anything if you take the Bible and you privately interpret it. Because you can leave out what you don't want. You can twist what you do want. You can 
bend the teachings in the Bible almost any way you want. And that's what, of course, people do because they are eating of the tree of knowledge and privately interpreting the Bible based on their personal interpretation and understanding. I could be doing that. Certainly people are doing it, which is why you have 40,000 different denominations. But are you doing it? That's the most important question. Are you doing it? That's the question you must ask. Are you privately interpreting the Bible? Or is it the Holy Spirit guiding you? Well, the Bible will give you hints as to whether it's the Holy Spirit or not. And those hints are in your works. What are you doing? Are you doing what Jesus said? Are you? And Jesus seemed to be in agreement with Moses in the transfiguration, what they call the transfiguration. That Moses and Jesus were buddies. And, and Elijah. They were all in agreement. So Moses and Jesus, had, I mean, and Jesus was constantly quoting Moses. You know, love thy neighbor as yourself. Jesus didn't invent that. That Moses had said that first. So where did he get it? Did he get it from Jesus? You know, I mean, then we got. You can create all kinds of theological interpretations of what is what, and all you have to do is just fudge a little bit on exactly what he said. And I, I've, I've shared recently. I think I shared it on the whole network. Uh, the quotes about. Uh, Jesus being, you know, they tried to, because they were wicked, they tried to trick Jesus into saying that you weren't to pay Caesar tribute. And he answered in a particular way, and there's a lot of different interpretations of what he said. And basically what I said was most of those interpretations, or many of those interpretations at least, are wrong. Even though they're at absolute different poles of interpretation. Some say that Jesus was saying you didn't owe Caesar anything and others will say that you do owe Jesus uh, your, I'm not Jesus, Caesar. Jesus was saying you do owe Caesar ta- pay, to pay your taxes and you should pay all the taxes Caesar demands of you. Well, the truth is he didn't say either one of those. What Jesus said, if you owe the tax, pay the tax. And the question that should first arise in your mind if you really are reading the Bible based on the Holy Spirit if you are truly seeking the truth an actual fact the Bible tells you the slothful shall be under tribute so your first question should be why am I under tribute to Caesar why do I owe Caesar and of course the Bible tells you because you're slothful in the ways of of Jesus and, and the ways of God. You're slothful in those ways. And that's why you're under tribute. You were under tribute when you were in Egypt. When we were in bondage in Egypt, we were under tribute. We had to pay to Pharaoh... 20% of our labor, usually in the form of labor, but I, I'll lay you odds, and there appears to be historical 
evidence of this, that often that 20% could be paid in some other commodity, such as grain. If you you had grain, you could pay 20% of the grain that you produced in a year to Caesar, and he would take that instead of your labor, because that grain represented your labor. I mean, their temples, their banks, were literally depositories for grain, because grain was like money in Egypt. It kept well. It stored well. It had intrinsic value. It was the perfect commodity money for a lot of things. And and so grain was wealth. And so the temples had granaries where they stored the wealth. And the gods didn't eat the, the grain, but the gods spent the grain. And who were the gods? The guys who controlled the temples. They were the gods of Egypt. Now they had symbols... And those symbols, you know, of Horus and and the other um, Isis and other god figures that they hold up. But these were all symbols of ideas. I mean, if you read the Ma'at, which is some 60 laws, it's like an explanation of the Ten Commandments. You, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ox. They just go into... Another one for thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ass, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's all kinds of stuff. And so they end up with 64. You could kind of sum it up with thou shalt not covet. And then you've got it all covered. But the mod is very much like the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments shortened everything down. And so... You know, it was more of an outline, brief summary of the of what God meant for you to follow as His law. But people people don't see; they don't look at the whole picture. Why? 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 Why did Moses's Ten Commandments that he brought down from the mountains look so much like the Egyptians' Ma'at? And why did they have to leave Egypt if the Ma was so much like the Ten Commandments? Because they weren't keeping them in Egypt. They had, they had become drunk with one of the most primary forms of pharmaceutica, drugs. They had become drunk. Their government had become drunk with power. And they were abusing that power. And even Moses found himself abusing that power, murdering somebody he disagreed with, like Cain murdered his brother. So, what what all this is about is about how the kingdom of God really works and how can you determine what the kingdom of God really looks like. We'll do that when we come back.
So how do you know if you're really seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is what we're told to do by Jesus Christ, or you're seeking some sort of position, safe position, emotionally safe position of self-righteousness? Your safe space. That's what everybody's looking for today on college campuses is safe spaces. Uh, and uh, people like uh, Jordan Peterson is uh, and saying that if, if you really are looking for a safe space, see a therapist. But don't go to college. Colleges, he says, should not be a safe space. They should be challenging everything you think, tearing it down. In the hopes of rebuilding it. That's what, in, in something that is valuable and profitable to you as well as to society itself. And there's something to be said for that. I don't recommend anybody go to universities, but then I'm not going to tell you what to do. You, you should be following the Holy Spirit, and it may want you to go to a university. It may want you to go somewhere else. I don't know where the Holy Spirit wants you to go, and I couldn't dictate that to you or even suggest that. But I need I know you need to go to the Holy Spirit. So how do you go to the Holy Spirit? How you don't actually go to the Holy Spirit, you just stop trying to go all the other places and let the Holy Spirit come to you. But there is something that draws you to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit to you. You can't do it on your own, but it will it will open a door where the Holy Spirit may want to enter into you and guide you. And that is sacrifice. That's why the word sacrifice comes from the word in the Hebrew that means to draw near. It's composed of that word. You know, you have a word like korban, which uh, is a kuf, I guess, resh, biet, Mim. So right away you see four letters there. So four letters means some letter has been added because Hebrew is basically three letter words. And you add a letter to add to the meaning. And you might take a letter away to reduce the meaning to something else. There are some words, and this will probably play into uh, this little short series uh, eventually, but uh, there were a number of words that I looked up recently and just to, to refresh my understanding of their meaning. And one is narcissist, narcissist or narcissism, uh, which is a person who has an excessive interest in or... And admiration of themselves. They're, they're absolutely interested in, this, in themselves. Now, it says excessive there, but the reality is anything more than caring about yourself, 51% of your care is about yourself, is the antithesis of Christ. Because Christ wanted you to care about your neighbor as much as yourself. So if you care about yourself just a little bit more than your neighbor, you're already departing from the ways of Christ. You're, you're, you're pushing the Holy Spirit away. You're blocking the Holy Spirit out. Because the nature of God is to care about everybody equally. And the nature of God is to love your neighbor as yourself. 
and that's the nature to do that is is going to draw the spirit of God into you it's going to make you a habitation for the spirit of God to care about yourself your will your wants your desires more than your neighbors makes you a habitation for demons because that's that fits right into the demon agenda Satan's agenda he cares about what he wants more than he cares about what God wants so that's going to draw you towards the kingdom of hell now do you really care about your neighbor as much as yourself have you put yourself up on a pedestal have you put others on a pedestal so that you could be the pedestal pusher, the person who puts people on pedestals, the God creator? Well, the the other words I was looking up is sociopath, uh, also uh, psychopath. These are all words that I was looking up. Uh, the other words I was looking up is empathy and sympathy and compassion. Are those all the same? I mean, they all have kind of overlapping meanings. You know, you you might find the word empathy in in the definition of sympathy, because empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. To understand is more than just know about. It actually means that you kind of walk in their shoes. You. I I I've been there. I've done that kind of thing. I've I felt this. I feel your pain. That's empathy. It doesn't say anything about it, the judgment of it, but you can feel and share the same pain and, and understand the same pain that they're feeling or the same pleasure that they're feeling. Sympathy is feeling of pity or sorrow for someone else's misfortune. Bless their heart. <laughs> the poor, poor deer. It doesn't, you know, and compassion is supposed to be a sympathetic pity. That's what compassion is. So that's almost the same as sympathy because it says it's a sympathetic pity or concern for the suffering or misfortune of others. And like uh, one psychologist pointed out is that a grizzly bear is very, very compassionate. For their cubs, but they're not compassionate for anybody who gets between them and their cubs. <laughs> you will feel the wrath of their compassion in a very uncompassionate attack upon your person. So compassion in itself is not enough. Sympathy in itself is not enough. Empathy which is devoid of moral choice or decision, is simply the ability to understand or share the feelings. It has no feeling of pity or sorrow or anything. It's just you you can feel what they feel. You can be aware of what they feel. And that, But it's, it's kind of devoid of uh, moral choice. So these, the, all these words, including the psychopath and the the uh, sociopath and the narcissist, all these may play into understanding the kingdom of God and understanding that there's a difference between a Christian and a pseudo-Christian. 
and that a unidimensional approach to understanding the Bible through your own intellect, through your own study of the Bible, through your private interpretation of your study of the Bible, is absolutely dangerous and not a safe space to be in, not a safe place to be in. So anyway, uh, one particular person has been writing me. He lives in the Midwest. He, he makes his living, I guess, or at least part of his living, by carving objects out of wood, which is one of the commandments, that you are not to make anything, <laughs> oh, any graven image um, out of uh, wood or other materials of anything, you know, like fish or animals or any of those graven images. Now, of course, I understand what that Hebrew command is really all about. And it's perfectly okay that he carves a deer's head or an owl or a bear out of a log or whatever. It's perfectly okay that he does that. But one interpretation by many, many people is that he is a terrible idolater and sinner because he is carving these images in, in wood. But that's the thing with private interpretations is that you can, you can produce almost any doctrine depending on where you put the accent, where you put the emphasis on what you're reading in the Bible. And what you dismiss is, oh, that's just symbolic or metaphor. So, you can create all kinds of opposing doctrines. Very easy. If you're really a pseudo-Christian, if you're not really a follower of the Holy Spirit, an eater of the tree of life, consuming the directives of the tree of life, God says, Jesus says in the Bible, they would build his church by revelation, not by flesh and blood. And your reading of the Bible is a flesh and blood act. Your brain is taking in those words, taking in those phrases, putting those ideas together, and creating an image of God as you read the Bible. Unless you're eating of the tree of life. If you're eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you're going to come up with a variety, an infinite variety of eschatologies and theologies and doctrines. And you're going to justify those doctrines using quotes from the Bible. But you're not going to manifest the spirit of Christ. You're not going to come together to serve one another. You will gather with people, but only those people who who bolster or support your view of the Bible, your interpretation, your private interpretation of the Bible, what you believe that it actually is saying, based on your conclusion, based on your flesh and blood study of the Bible, you're going to gather with people that confirm 
that belief. Support that belief. And anybody who doesn't, you'll go and test people and say, well, do you believe this? Do you believe that? Do you believe this? Do you believe that? And then you'll finally decide, oh, I can fellowship with this guy because he supports the doctrines that I believe in. And your doctrines, if you could write them out, you could worship those doctrines. Because that's your God. You've created it with your own mind and you believe in those doctrines and you worship those doctrines. And it usually consists of a lot of rituals. Now, this is where I start. If I start listing off those rituals and ceremonies, those those things you do to perform tasks that would seem to be in... Um, Conformity with your doctrines. You know, like head covering. Or all the women wearing dresses all the time. You know, long dresses all the time. These are symbols of your doctrine. And, uh, you know, like uh, Amish with their beards and all these kind of things. They, 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 it's a uniform. And they know that they're one of our group. Because they have these outward signs. Pharisees had that. You know, whites and sepulchers. They wore outfits. They wore robes. They wore uh, certain kinds of hats. They wore certain kinds of vestments. You know, priests do this. And then we know you're one of us. Gangs do this. Gang colors. Romans did this. You know, they had two different groups. I think it was red and green. If you're wearing red, you are part of this group. If you're green, you are part of that. Might have been blue. I can't remember. I'm a little colorblind in all those areas, but it doesn't really matter. It's whatever it is. It's you identify with that group, and that group supports your belief or your team or your your gang, and so therefore you have this sense of community. Surrounding that belief in that that doctrine, and so people go around. They create their doctrines, which is their God, with their own minds and their private interpretation of the Bible. And then they want you to conform to that. If you don't, then they they shun you. Now the Bible talks about shunning people. It advises us to shun people. Paul does. He says, you know, from such turn away. He, he specifically says that. From such, turn away. But he doesn't say from people who don't, you know, wear headdresses. Uh, from people who, you know, you know, he talks about more basic understanding of... Uh, morality. Let's put it that way. You know, backbiters, gossipers, uh, people who covet their neighbor's goods. Now, I mean, if you're not to have anything to do with anybody who covets their neighbor's goods, you can't have anything to do with a socialist. Christians should have nothing to do with socialists because the very basic concept of socialism is that 
we covet the goods of the rich. We want those who have more to share with those that don't have as much. And we are willing to force them to do this if they become a member of our nation or our group. It's it's coveting. You can't want that without coveting. You know, if you want to tax the rich to provide for the poor, it doesn't say thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods unless he's really rich. If he's really rich, you can covet his goods. Don't you realize that if you were really seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God could arrange that all the wealth of Egypt would be given to you and you could leave town. (laughs) If you were actually seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you would spoil the Egyptians and you wouldn't have to, you know, start a socialist state. They will want to give you their stuff. They will want to cast blessings upon you. You don't need to be a socialist and force the rich to give you what they have produced or they have or they own or whatever. Yeah, I'm amazed at the number of people who want to do away with capitalism. And it's because they're drugged. Their brains are drugged. They don't even understand what capitalism... Capitalism, all that is, is the private ownership of the means of production. You have dominion over what you produce. You have dominion over your children, that little baby who just died in England. Those parents didn't have dominion over that child. State did. The hospital did. Not the parents. It was their child, but they don't get to keep it. They're just breeding machines for the state. You know, it's interesting, the hospital that was doing all this, not letting them take it for this experimental coverage, that was the Peter Pan Hospital. (laughs) You know, it was heavily funded by all the... Every time you see a Peter Pan show with Walt Disney or a Peter Pan play or any time Peter Pan is, is used, the character Peter Pan is used, that hospital gets money. <laughs> but uh, they didn't want that baby to go to Never Never Land. They, they just as soon have it die. And they didn't want the parents to have it. They wanted it. They wanted the control and custody of that child. And the reason that you don't own your children, you don't have dominion over your children, is because of the covetous practices of you and your parents and probably your parents' parents. And you've gone into the bondage of Egypt. You you have... And God didn't just take people out of Egypt He told them never to go back there again. And if they wanted to even have any kind of government that could exercise authority one over the other, whether it was a king or a president or a prime minister, it didn't make any difference. God told you to write five things down in a constitution that is to be read to that leader or those leaders every day. I have not found a constitution anywhere in the entire world 
that has those five things. The U.S. Constitution only has one of those five things. But one of those things is it was you were to never return to the bondage of Egypt. Was the bondage of Egypt where a portion of your labor could be extracted from you without pay in support of the government. That's the bondage of Egypt. 20% in Egypt, 57%, I think, in some countries. In some countries, it's like the minimum is like 60% or 70%. France, it goes up to over 70%. Some countries want to get it up to 90% of your labor belongs to the state. And there's no ceiling limit on this in in the United States, in most countries, they can just keep going. As a matter of fact, if you go get a passport, anybody who gets a passport, the law states in the United States that you're under an oath if you get that passport. Whether you take it or not, you are bound by this oath. In order to get the passport, that is a requirement. If you have the passport, it is assumed that you are under this oath. That oath includes the fact that you can be compelled to work at civilian work projects without pay at the bequest of the government. In other words, they could just take you off the street and send you to the mud pits. <laughs> and you you got a passport, you they can do that. They may not do it today, but they may do it tomorrow. And that's, I mean, it's written into the law. You go look at our website and, and it quotes you. It shows you. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. You're in the bondage of Egypt now. You've returned to the bondage of Egypt while you were going to church and slaying people in the spirit and all this stuff. You entered the bondage of Egypt. You've been entangled again in that yoke of bondage. You don't live by the perfect law of liberty because you're all a bunch of socialists. You send your kids to public school. You have the state take care of your parents through Social Security, which is totally bankrupt, been bankrupt for years. and years. It was bankrupt when it was created because there is no division of funds. People say, oh, they've been pilfering our Social Security. It was written from the beginning, no division of funds from the, the main fund. The funds go in there it is all one fund. There is no separation. They didn't suddenly pass a law that now they can take from those funds or something like that. They passed procedures, but they, from the beginning, the Supreme Court ruled there is no division of funds. So the system was bankrupt to begin with, and it's still bankrupt. And it borrows against the future, which is a violation of the keeping of the Sabbath, that curses your children with a debt when they're born in debt, fifty, sixty, two hundred thousand dollars in debt, depending on how you figure it or what country you're in. And they're going to have to work off your debt. They're cursed with that burden from generation to generation. Why? Because for generation to generation, you have not been seeking the kingdom of God. You've been seeking your church. You've been seeking that, you know, that where your pastor is your comforter because he tells you that you have the Holy Spirit or you receive the Holy Spirit, but you haven't really. You are under a strong delusion because you have accepted the drug of false religion, which is pharmaceutica. 
I mean, pharmaceutical is, is a, it's a broad term. It's any poison. Poisons your heart, poisons your mind. You know, if if you think, because you got this calendar, wear this outfit, put a doily on your wife's head, your wife has long hair. I mean, that's not the criteria of Christ. He didn't talk about that. He talked about the Samaritan woman and the good Samaritan. The good Samaritan. A Samaritan was doing everything wrong, according to the Jews. They were the dogs of society, and yet he's talking about the good Samaritan. Why is that Samaritan so good? Because his wife's got a doily on her head? Because his wife wears a long dress? Because he's got a calendar that you you like? That Jesus liked? Oh, I like the calendar of the Samaritans, so they're the good Samaritans. No, it was because they cared about others. They came to serve others. They came to love others. The good Samaritan did. The rest of them didn't. We'll be right back. Don't go away. So if we if we look at Second uh, Timothy, uh, which is uh, in the second chapter, or actually third chapter, first part of the fir- uh, third chapter, we see uh, a reference to uh, why and who we should be turning away from, and uh, you know it talks about uh, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. So, as soon as we say last days, everybody's ears perk up because everybody thinks... Well, the fact is, every one of you are in your last days. Because <laughs> every day you're getting closer and closer to your last day. So, so anyway, uh, uh, and people have thought that it was the end times, and it was the end times for them, uh, for centuries and centuries and millenniums. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. No mention of doilies there on the head of your wife. <laughs> no, no mentions of calendars there in that list. Um, but does mention covetous. Desiring what? Benefits at the expense of your neighbor? Boasters, I've got it figured out. My studies have been so long. I mean, you could accuse me of that. Proud. I mean, I talk like I know what I'm talking about. Like I'm right and you're wrong. But then you'd have to walk with me a while and find out whether I'm really all that proud or I'm trying to exercise authority over you or I'm trying to put somebody up on a pedestal. Lovers of my own self, well, 
my wife scolds me constantly because she doesn't think I take good enough care of myself. (laughs) I'm up till 2 o'clock in the morning trying to clarify the gospel for other people who give no benefit to me. And then up early, early in the morning uh, doing the same thing again or worried about somebody else or taking care of somebody else or going to somebody else and helping them. but I, that could, by the fact I even tell you that, I'm not going to give you all the details, you could call me a boaster. Uh, proud. Now, you could call me a blasphemer, but we could do a whole study on that. What is actually blaspheming? <laughs> I, it, you know, I'm always giving credit to the Holy Spirit, always giving credit to God. Uh, disobedient to parents? Well, according to my parents, I weren't. <laughs> I was a pretty good kid. Uh, unthankful, I uh, would be, be called unthankful. Unholy, well, maybe because my wife doesn't wear a doily on her head. Uh, and I'm using that as an example. There's a million examples. I mean, I'll use almost any calendar if it even has any basis or purpose. And I believe that Israel used several calendars. They used one calendar for determining the feasts, another one for planting, another one for navigation. They they understood calendars. Uh, and they used them all. And uh, we're talking Israelites who read Hebrew and studied Hebrew. I mean, the Essenes, more often from what archaeologists are able to determine, were using solar calendars. Not lunar calendars. But they were aware of the lunar calendar. And for feasts, they probably used the lunar calendar, determining it based on something. Most of the people don't really understand these things. But they like to make it all real complicated. What are some of the other things in this list of things of, of the people from such we are to turn away? Without natural affection. Um, it's people who divorce. People who don't take care of their children. Truce breakers. Ah, say one thing but do another. You know, they say, yeah, we're going to gather together with you and we're going to take care of the needy of our society. But, oh my goodness, somebody has a doctrine that doesn't match my doctrine, so we're going to abandon them all. Well, that's a truce breaker. didn't say contract breaker. It says truce breaker. What's a truce breaker? Now, we could actually do a whole show just on that. <laughs> and figure out, what is a truce breaker? Uh, because, I mean, it's actually, um, spondos is the actual uh, Greek word that we see there. Um, implacable is another word that that word, it only appears twice in the Bible. It says, without a treaty or a covenant of things not mutually agreed upon. Abstinences from hostility, which that could be, you know, they don't have any hostility. That cannot be persuaded to enter into a covenant implacable. So, what that is, really, because we're not supposed to be making covenants. So, that isn't it when we we look at this word 
which is actually composed of it's it's the negative of another word that only appears a couple times in the Bible, uh, which uh, is translated "be offered" or "ready to be offered." So when they say truce breaker, it is somebody who doesn't want to be a part of the offering. You know, the congregations of God are free assemblies. But they are centered around altars of living stones, which we can explain a little bit again for those who haven't caught up with what the Bible is really talking about. But a truce breaker is somebody who just, I don't want to be a part. I don't need to be a part of you. I got my little group over here, and uh, we all agree with me. (laughs) And my private interpretation of the Bible so we don't need to join with you. We're going to do our own thing here. We're going to, you know, and uh, we're going to try to gather to us the people that are like us and think like us because that's supportive of our egos. <laughs> that's really what they're saying. That's what a truce breaker is. Because it's, it's the negative of the word that is translated normally be ready to be offered or be offered they don't want to be a part of the offering they don't they don't want to be a part of that sacrifice and altars which has been the pattern from abraham and actually we can go all the way back to enoch but at least from abraham who built altars not just for himself but for all kinds of people showed him how to do this wouldn't be a part of a city-state in any way, shape, or form, but built altars instead. So whatever those altars were, they were providing some sort of thing that they could get in the city-state, but he wouldn't be a part of the city-states. He left the city-states, Ur and Haran, but built altars. So what was that all about? Just burning up sheep? I mean, that burning up sheep, that really brings us together. So that we're willing to fight and die for one another when an enemy comes. No, I don't think so. False accusers. There's another thing that he lists there. Uh, and and the word there, false accuser, it's only translated false accuser twice in the Bible. It's actually the word that we see as devil. Uh, and it you know it's uh, prone to slander, accusing falsely. And, I mean, that could be almost anybody, but that, you know, it comes from the word accuse, diabolo. And so, therefore, when you get diabolos, that's a false accuser. So, anybody with those characteristics of a false accuser who accuses you of something, but he's actually incorrect. And and maybe he's accusing you and he doesn't even have the knowledge. He just assumes it. Because he sees something and he says, oh, I don't like that. You know, like this one particular guy that was writing this week. There was a number of them, but one particular one saw on our website that we actually sell some books that we have printed up by a printer who charges us when we do that. And we mail them out for the same price as the what we have on the net. And, it, you know, we've mailed them to England and wherever and they... Uh, it costs you quite a bit more to mail them to England. I mean, you're losing money when you do that, but we do it because we didn't. I just haven't had the time to go and say, well, you know, add postage if you're from England or Australia. You can buy the books in Australia because we have somebody there who prints them, and then we don't have to mail them all the way to Australia. So, 
But the fact is, all these books are available free online. You can download them. You can take them down to the printer on a thumb drive, and they'll print them up for you. And you just pay them. And we don't get any money out of it at all. I mean, it's been there's some guys who go and print it out with an inkjet printer. And some even with the cartridge, you know, printers, the color cartridge printers. Well, that's just going to cost you more than the book probably. But anyway, and then you have to bind them and all that stuff. So if we do all that work, a laborer is worthy of his hire. And besides that, we give away so many books, we don't make a dime on selling them. But everything's available for free. Uh, I just don't, you know, I make my living by manual labor. And I don't have the money to, to everybody who sends me a letter with a postage stamp on it. I'm supposed to send them a book. I just don't have those resources. And nobody should expect that. But anyway, he's he's all against me because I actually sell books. Uh, I would starve if I depended on that money. As a matter of fact, I, I don't like I said, I don't believe there's any profit in it whatsoever because we give so many away. Anyway, uh, then there's another word that he uses, and these are the people who are supposed to stay away, the people who are incontinent. So what the, I mean, what is that? Uh, without self-control. Uh, intemperate. You know, like somebody who who can't control themselves. And that, I mean, boy, that really starts to create a lot of people. And that's another one of those words that is, is just has, a, you know, the A in front of it, which is uh, negative. But uh, power and dominion or strength is the actual word there. And then the negative word to that becomes this incontinent uh, word, uh, which only appears once in the Bible. So somebody who can't seem to manage their own affairs, even. Uh, you know, the, the, maybe drug addicts. You know, they can't give up drugs. They can't give up smoking. They can't give up, you know, they they have some sort of an addiction. They will not give up. And it causes them to not be able to function in their life. They can't take care of their family. They can't take care of themselves because they're taking these drugs or overeating or what have you. They're destroying themselves because they can't hold dominion over themselves. They're incontinent. And then he has the word fierce there, which again is another one of those negative words. Uh, Anameros which is uh, from the from the uh, uh, you know it's a negative of hemeros, which actually is uh, they're not tame, they're savage, they're fierce. Which is probably a good time to to read one of my favorite quotes, which is Polybius years before John the Baptist was telling us to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness by taking care of one another through charity rather than force. That's that's the whole message of John the, the Baptist. To take care of one another through charity instead of through force. Everybody else wanted to do it through force, through socialism, through you know some sort of social justice thing where we force people to do things that we think they ought to do based on our consumption of the tree of knowledge. And Polybius saw this coming a hundred years before John the Baptist. 
and said the masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of the rule of force and violence. Sound familiar? Socialism. That's what you have today. You don't have capitalism. You have something calling itself capitalism. You have remnants of capitalism. But, you know, there's a there's a lost cabin out there on the desert. And it used to be a cabin, but now they call it the lost cabin. Well, it's also lost the wall. <laughs> it's not even a cabin anymore. And it's all falling down. I'm not even sure if it's there anymore. I haven't been out there in a number of years. But, you know, you that's as as much as that is a cabin is as much capitalism as you got in this country. You don't really have capitalism in America. You don't have it hardly anywhere in the world uh, because you are in the last days. But anyway, uh, the masses, this is back there 100 years, a little more than 100 years before John the Baptist was even born, before Mary and Elizabeth even met. He was saying the masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of a rule of force and violence. Arche, rulers, take from one class, give to another. I believe that everybody should give according to their ability. And everybody should receive according to their need. I believe that. But I believe that that giving should not be by force. (laughs) It should be by charity. By individual choice. By that individual exercising dominion over what he produced, he chooses to distribute that thing that he has produced according to his choice. And I believe that everyone who has a true need should receive according to their need. But a lazy bum does not need a big breakfast or a fine lunch or a delicious supper. He needs to fast and maybe get a boot kick in the butt to get him moving and off the couch and out of the video game and back to work. (laughs) He doesn't need gifts, gratuities, and benefits. He probably has too many of those to begin with and it has made him lazy, selfish, self-indulgent. And if you give to him, you are doing him no service. And so you need to, if you're going to redistribute wealth, you need to have men who understand work, who understand labor, who understand the value of the work day. The people having grown accustomed to feed, this is what Polybius goes on to say, The people having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others and depend for their livelihood on the property of others institute the rule of violence. What are they talking about? People who work for the government who are paid a salary, a wage, or whatever 
because the government forces people to contribute. The government of God does not force you to contribute. It gives you dominion, the right to choose to contribute or not contribute. But, of course, some of you are truth breakers. You don't want to contribute. You don't want to take and make that offering. This is what a truth breaker is. It says there, the negative of being ready to offer, which is being ready not to offer. (laughs) They don't want to be a part of your group. They don't want to contribute on a regular basis. I don't care what group it is. If the, if it's in charge of the daily ministration of taking care of the needy of your society, which often is widows and orphans, and you don't want to contribute to that, because what is widows and orphans to me? One guy said, a rich man said that to me once. What are widows and orphans to me? What have they ever done for me? <laughs> well, you're out. You're out of the kingdom. <laughs> I'm not supposed to have anything to do with you. I'm supposed to turn away from you. He's last I heard he was in federal prison because uh, he didn't want to give to anybody's government, uh, God's government or man's government. So he ended up in prison. Now, I would still have something to do with him. But what I would have to do with him is to preach to him the kingdom of God and his righteousness so that he would finally say, oh, my gosh, I should have been taking care of the widows and orphans and the needy of society. And I should be doing it through men who understand a day's labor and work and are workers themselves. Because we know the slothful shall be under tribute. You know, we 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 know those who don't work should not eat and should not get a big breakfast. <laughs> you should not give them $20 out your car window. And that isn't the way, that isn't the traditions of the kingdom of God. So anyway, the people are instituting a rule of violence so that they get their pension and their welfare and everything else from the government who exercises authority. But what he's talking about here, this isn't biblical. This is somebody before John the Baptist, but it it is biblical in principles. The people having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others. They don't think that you could have roads unless you have government. They don't think you can have education unless you have government. They don't think it's possible because they've grown accustomed to getting their free education through government, their welfare through government, their care for their parents through government, you know, Social Security, their jobs often through government. They don't think there's any other way. I'm okay with that. But I'm still saying repent, turn around, seek the kingdom of God. I'm not saying quit your job. Stop taking your Social Security check. I'm saying start seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God operates by faith, hope, and charity, not force, fear, and violence. But if you don't want to be a part of a group, you know, even though it's a free assembly that is trying to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity and that perfect law of liberty, you're a truce breaker. You're not willing to offer. You're not willing to come because there is no contract in the offering. It's a free Offering, that's what it is. Free will offering, they call it in the Old Testament. Charity, we call it in the New Testament. You don't want to do that? I'm not supposed to have anything to do with it. Polybius goes on to say, And now uniting their forces, massacre, banish, plunder, until they degenerate again into perfect savages. And find once more a master and a monarch. That's what they do. They they degenerate into perfect savage, savages. 
So when we're looking at the false accuser, incontinent, fierce, fierce, savages, <laughs> despises those that are good. They don't like us if we actually take care of one another because, I mean, most of the Christians were persecuted out of jealousy. Because their system was actually working in Roman system of social welfare through social justice warriors forcing the contributions of the people wasn't working. Christians, it was working. So that's that's what you end up with. But anyway, it goes on and adds to the list traitors, betrayers. You know, anybody who says, yeah, we want to be a part of your network of faith, hope, and charity, and then they cop out and jump out the other direction. They're traitors. They said, we want to seek the kingdom of God, but we don't really want to seek the kingdom of God. <laughs> they betray what they say. They don't betray me, because they, I didn't say to be a part of me. I'm saying to be a part of the kingdom of God. Whenever you're localizing your congregation, so it's just your little group, well, you're not headed towards the kingdom because Jesus clearly was reaching out to Romans, uh, to Samaritans. Uh, He was sending his men. At first, he sent them out to the Israelites that were all over the place. But then he sent them out to all nations. First he sent them out without a purse. Then he sent them out with a purse. He sent them out without a purse to learn something. Then he sent them out with a purse. He talks about people who are heady. Uh, They fall forward, headlong, sloping. Uh, People who charge ahead kind of thing. Reckless. That's actually what that means. Uh, Then they talk about high-minded which is part of that word proud. Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of lofty in their thinking, but uh, lovers of pleasures, which is what he adds to that high-minded. Uh, they're, they're lofty, you know, but love pleasure. The uh, Essenes refer to them as lovers of soft things. That's the word that they actually use there. And for all I know, it's probably part of the same word. You, But it's it's actually composed of two words there. But you're getting the picture. Uh, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God doesn't mean you couldn't have any pleasure. But you have to, you know, be willing to give up your sleep, your soft bed, your air conditioner. And get out there and get to work for the kingdom of God, which means to serve others, because Jesus is one who came to serve. Now, these all these people you're to turn away from, they may have a form of godliness. You know, they may have some religion, and they and this is what you'll see them punctuated with is calendars and wardrobe, and uh, and things that don't have anything to do with what we just read. Those will be important. But taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of society, not only for those that are close to you, but those that are far away, casting your bread upon the waters kind of thing. If they don't have that, they're truce breakers. They're, you know, they're, they're not a part of the kingdom. We should turn away from them. 
Uh, but they actually deny the power thereof from such turn away. The power thereof. Dunamis is the word that they use there in the Greek. The power thereof. Uh, and he, then he goes on and warns about you know those guys who creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. Uh, that's not as uncommon as you might think. That is actually very common. And and some of those diverse lusts is desiring those benefits that Polybius was talking about. That John the Baptist was saying, no, take care of one another through faith, open charity. Which is what Jesus said and what the early church did. And why people were jealous of the early church is because they had... They knew religion was how you take care of the needy of your society. And pure religion was to do it without any of the benefits of men who exercised authority one over the other. The world, the constitutional orders and governments who were using that force, fear, and violence that Polybius talks about. This is the gospel of the kingdom. Really simple. You gather together like Christ came together to, uh, with us to serve. And what serves is to strengthen the poor by helping those in need learn to help themselves. If they're addicted to drugs, if they're addicted to food, if they're addicted to laziness, uh, sleeping in late, get them off that addiction and help them seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So now we're going to talk a little bit more shift gears again when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. So here, here's a time where we can start going over some of the, uh, the things that uh, one individual wrote in a letter because he thinks he's testing me. And, and that's okay. I think you should test people, but you should know what questions to ask. You should also, you know, I do this all the time. I, I see people, on, I've been moderated on Facebook somehow or other when I post almost anything on Facebook uh, to one fairly large group uh, it's marked instantly as spam <laughs> and the group keeps releasing it the head of the group keeps releasing it and says oh, I don't see them as spam at all but Facebook has decided that they're spam I think it probably at first maybe because of the number of links I share but all these links are linked back to my writings they're not just random links and those writings are explaining the particular thing that was asked about in greater detail. And I do this all the time. And, you know, because I, the, the same questions keep coming up over and over again when you're dealing with, you know, 7 billion people on the planet. And the reality is, is these questions have been answered throughout time by people like Christ, Abraham, Moses, 
you know, I mean, archaeologists are now just finding more and more evidence that Abraham was actually existed and Abraham was actually doing something. The problem is most people don't understand what he was doing. They don't understand what these altars were. Why was he teaching these other people round about him who are not in city-states to build altars? Well, these altars, and we have whole books that explain what these altars were, and we use the Bible and the meaning of words in the Bible as expressed by scholars to show you, and, and we back it up with, you know, a number of different checks. You know, we actually look at the letters. Do the letters have the meaning that makes this word mean what this scholar says it means? Yes. This scholar over here doesn't seem to know what he's talking about. But So we have backup ways to logically follow this. If you are just absolutely adamant about seeking the kingdom of God from the tree of knowledge, we can shake your branches and show you that the altars were systems of social welfare that bound people together by faith, open charity, and the perfect law of liberty, which allowed people to remain strong individually, which made their communities strong. Because they weren't collectives where some central power like Stalin can divide the, your bread from house to house without you first just choosing to give Stalin some bread to divide. And if he doesn't do a good job, you won't give to him anymore. Because the power is in your hand. The dominion is in your hand. People who give up their rights for a safe space despise dominion. And Paul talks about that as well. Woe unto those who despise dominion. They give up their dominion for benefits. The greatest destroyers of liberty, which is the right to choose is the givers of gifts, gratuities, and benefits. If you sell your birthright to choose over your labor in order to obtain benefits, you despise dominion. That's what it says, although some translated say it says despise government. Well, see, when you have dominion over your stuff, over your labor, over your family, that's government. The reins of government are in your hands. Now, you can take a portion of what's in your hands and give it to somebody else to manage because you have to care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. If you don't, you're not following Moses and you're not following Christ and you're not following John the Baptist and you're not following God. Well, How do you care about your neighbor when you're busy doing your own thing? You take some of what you produce and you give it to somebody who is dedicating his life to serving your neighbors. Not just those neighbors close to you, but he gets in a network with a team effort and serve neighbors two states over, three states over, two countries over, halfway around the world. How did Paul know who to go see in Galatia? How did he know to take up a collection in Galatia? How did Galatia know to even take up a collection to send to Corinth? How did they know that? Did somebody call them on the phone? Did they do it on the internet? Did they Google it? They knew it because they were a network of communication. Why do you think the Levites had singers 
It was part of their network of communication. This guy, I can't believe that somebody actually says this and say that they actually study the Bible. But then I do believe it because I know that people don't really study the Bible. <laughs> they, don't, they don't really know what they're talking about. Because they're studying it from the point of view of the tree of knowledge. They, they really don't understand what they're reading. And, and that's, you know, to be fair, the reason they don't understand is because there's been 2,000 years of apostasies, especially in the last 1,000 years, where people have had a concerted effort to keep the truth from you. The books that survived the Holocaust of the Inquisition and the writers, even the writers who got into the Bible, got into the Bible because they were sometimes hard to understand, which is given like Paul. Paul is hard to understand. And we know that because Peter said that Paul was going to talk to you about things that are hard to understand. And it's not necessarily Paul's fault as much as the fact that he was going to talk to you about things that are hard to understand. So Paul's writings lend themselves to misinterpretation because they're hard to understand. So if you read Paul, you can become confused. Now if you read somebody who's explaining what Paul was actually saying, like showing you where he says to have nothing to do with somebody, which has nothing to do with a hat on your wife's head or a scarf or doily, has nothing to do with whether your wife wears a long dress or you know, modest clothes, obviously, but she wears different kinds of clothes. It isn't about that. He's saying about all these other things. And there's a, there's other places where he gives a list and we could go through those, but we just don't have time right now. Maybe we'll do it through this show this afternoon. But it, it's very clear. You know, I, I, I sent this guy articles. I, I'd answer his questions and then I would connect him to an article like Eternal Life. We have an article on eternal life because people always want to talk about eternal life. It's always that wanting to know, you know, this. They got whole doctrines surrounding this phrase eternal life. But it's, you have to take it out of context in order to come up with a lot of these doctrines. So I talk, and he, he doesn't trust man made religions, but he doesn't even seem to know what religion is. So I sent him an article on pure religion, but he doesn't. He doesn't go and read these things. I don't know which ones. He, he must have read something, but he tells me he doesn't go and read the links because he, it confuses him. Well, what it's doing is revealing to him his confusion already because he has misinterpretations because he doesn't have the whole picture. And like I said, to be fair, it's very hard to get the whole picture after a thousand years of apostasy and suppression of the truth. And misinterpreting the truth. When they couldn't stop people from printing the Bibles. I mean, they burned uh, all the original Bibles that were printed by Gutenberg and his partner. I think they actually burned his partner even. They certainly arrested him and tried him. Uh, because they didn't want people reading the Bible. I mean, Tyndale got his tongue cut out and burned at the stake. And he was hired by the king. But the king was happy when that happened because... They realized that uh, the Bible was dangerous. People were starting to understand that Paul said 
things like let everybody remain subject to the original liberty. Because all liberty is of God, there is no liberty but of God, and anyone who opposes liberty opposes God. So they wanted their translators translating that so that you wouldn't know what it means. And then, of course, the Catholic Church and and the Jesuits and all those guys, I don't want to pick on individual groups, but because there are probably some good Jesuits out there who are not far from the kingdom. But the reality is there were people working through those organizations that wanted to keep you from understanding the Bible. So they created theologies and spread them amongst even the Protestants to keep you from actually knowing the simplicity of the gospel. Well, when when you actually are willing to sacrifice for others and care about others as much as you care about yourself and come together to serve, you become a conduit of the Holy Spirit. You can be. Of course, it's up to the Holy Spirit. So he's going to determine... The Holy Spirit will determine whether you are really a true vessel of the Holy Spirit or not. Now, the world's got to create artificial uh, appearances of the Holy Spirit. And they do this through emotion and through those chemicals produced in your own body, through your own pharmaceutica, by appealing to your emotions, which is the major catalyst or trigger of these chemicals in your body. Emotions of fear, emotions of lust, emotions of passion repetition, excitement, getting all kinds of other people, mass hysteria, all these things can create the illusion, delusion of the Holy Spirit operating in you. This feeling of euphoria that comes over you that you think is the Holy Spirit. But what does James say? How do you determine? You know, the same one who talked about pure religion says not by faith but judge my faith by works it's you, you, not by you just saying you believe because the, the word faith back then was probity it had to do with something that compels action it was a conviction it wasn't just an idea that you repeated in your mind and he says where is pure religion said to be having a network uh, how did Paul know to move money from Galatia to Corinth? It was through a network. And, and we wrote a whole book, which is free online, Thy Kingdom Come, that shows you how this network works. And it's logical. And in the Old Testament, the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, what is that? You Ten guys pick a minister, that minister gets together with another nine guys and a minister uh, as their congregation and then they pick a minister and he gets together with nine other ministers like himself. That's a network. And so that when you take a problem to your minister, he takes it to his minister. And before you know it, you got hundreds of people working on your problem. You didn't Google it. You Levite it. <laughs> you told your minister. But you got to pick him. And he didn't rule over you. He served the tabernacles of the congregation, the tents of the congregation. That's what that actually says. And he says, I also disagree. The scripture teaches Jesus did not just start a house church. Well, he certainly didn't start. The apostles were going out over, you know, covering thousands of miles. Yes, there were house churches. 
they, people met in houses because the congregations were as small as ten. I mean, Passover, that takes place in a house. You pick the guy with the biggest house, and everybody goes over there and has a Passover meal. They always had house churches. Levites had, of course, they called them again tents, tabernacles. The tabernacles of the congregation, the houses of the congregations. And they gathered together in these ten family congregations where they'd all meet at one tent, one house. But they were networked together because when the Philistines came, they all had to show up. How did they all show up? Well, the Levites sent out the singers, the messengers, who would bring message. Levites, uh, you know, the uh, Philistines coming. They're heading, they're massing an army and they're marching in up of the north. We got to go up there. How did they do that? Network. <laughs> and this guy says, where was there ever a network? You even reading the Bible? No. Well, actually, he is. He is reading the Bible. But if he's listened to the Holy Spirit a little bit more, he would have seen that. It's always been a network. And and we've if you go, but he won't even go read the pages now. So I didn't even send them links the last time. Because, because it confuses him. Why? Because it conflicts with the God that he worships, which is created by his private interpretation of the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that to pick on the guy. I'm not mentioning his name here. I'm saying that to wake him up. I'm, I'm, I'm telling him in hopes that he realizes he's missing the gospel. It's really hard for people to let go of their delusion that they've already got it. I mean, the the Pharisees, they they thought they already got it. But if you don't really get it, I mean, where is your works? Where is the kingdom? Wow, who do you have? I have a guy, Paul, who's going around and can bring help from Kentucky to New York. We have the means to bring help from these places. Of course, people in Kentucky have to care about the people in New York. And the people in New York have to care care about the people in Missouri. And the people, you know, in Texas have to care about the people in the Ozarks. And and then we can we can move funds around just like Paul the Apostle. We'll do it with Paul my brother in Christ and with others. But this guy, he can't do that because he's got a little home church and his little goopy group that believes like he believes. And all the women put doilies on their heads or hats or scarves or something like that. And I'm being facetious. I'm being sarcastic because it's foolishness. And Jesus was the same way. Jesus, you know, called them out. Whited sepulchers, full of dead men's bones. Why? Because you got all these rituals, but you you're, you're truth breakers. You're you're not coming together in love for one another. You know you love your, those that love you, but what grace is there in that? Paul says. I mean, well, God says, Christ says, the Bible says. He mentions the Bible warns of a great falling away and the lack of faith on the earth. You got that. <laughs> it's there already. That's why you got 40,000 denominations, 41 with his. 
that they've already they have no daily ministration. They have nobody going around helping out people in the time of dearth, which is depressions. There, nobody's doing that. That's the job of government. Maybe he does, he doesn't want to. He does say he wants to be separate from the world and not a part of that. But where is he a part of the kingdom of God? If he thinks the kingdom of God is just a home church, that certainly is not what the early church was doing. They were taking up collections in Jerusalem and funds were going all the way across the Roman Empire. So anyway, he he makes a big deal out of the fact that we, we sell a few books online. He doesn't know anything about the number of books we give away. He doesn't know, didn't take the time. This is false accuser stuff. He didn't take the time to find out that all the books are free online. If you join the network, everybody will help you find the books. People will even give you the books. People people will give them away to you. Do it all the time. He didn't take the he didn't take the time to find that out. Doesn't want he doesn't even want to read the articles because it interferes with his his faith in his doctrine. So he asked a bunch of questions here, and I told him that I would answer them, and I only got a few minutes. He says, "Are you getting funds from all of these people?" No, absolutely not. Some funds do trickle up here to this ministry. And I say up here because we're at 4,000 feet. <laughs> uh, but there are very few people give to me directly uh, or give to his church in Summer Lake directly. And we have never really supported ourselves by the general con- uh, con- uh, contributions of people. And much of most people who come and take the time to find out, you want to come out here and visit, you want to come out here and learn the ways of the kingdom, you can come out, but I may put you to work. Uh, because I'm working. I'm working every day. Uh, this guy has no knowledge of that. He's got his little 40 questions and everything, but he's just fishing for guys who think like he thinks. Because it's all about him. It really isn't about Christ. If it was about Christ, he would have seen the network from the beginning, from Abraham, who was able to muster an army overnight because he created this network through his altars. And he would begin to suspect that the altars were more than just burning of sheep because that's not going to create much of a network. So some of his other questions, are you the top man in charge? I am in charge of me. I am not in charge of anybody else. I do not exercise authority one over the other. We have no top man in charge. Christ is in charge. I told him that over and over again. But he hasn't taken the time to even find out. He thinks he's going to know because he asks a question. Who are you accountable to? I'm accountable to Christ just like you're accountable to Christ. That's who I'm accountable to. And uh, if anybody wants to donate to our ministry, they can donate to our ministry. And I'm accountable to them in the sense that once they donate, because it's a free will offering, it's a burnt offering, if I don't do well with it, they don't have to give to me ever again. So in that sense, I'm accountable to them. But if they give it to me, I'm in charge of it. If they give it to Paul, he's in charge of it. If they give it to Caleb, he's in charge of it. If they give it to Abraham, he's in charge of it. That's the way it works. The Because they gave it to him. Now, if they gave it to him to do the work of Christ, they're answerable to Christ. Now, I tell you, that's no little thing. If you take money for the purposes of Christ and you use it for another purpose, 
you're going to erupt with emrods. <laughs> you know what emrods are? You studiers of the Bible, well, you're going to have emrods uh, coming out your gazoo. <laughs> so figure out what that is. Do I need to be in your network to be a part of Christ's body and gain eternal life? You need to be in a network of believers. Now, are we a network of believers? Well, I can tell you this. There are people in our network who are not really believers. And there are people in our network who probably are really believers. But you know who we're answerable to? Is Christ. What we're showing you is what the early church did. And we're showing you why they did it. And we're showing you how this affects their relationship with the Holy Spirit. And what is important in that relationship, which is your moral integrity, your charity, your your operation by faith, not the outside rituals, not whether you're a Samaritan or a Jew or you got a certain kind of hat on or any of those things. Those aren't important. Or whether you have the right calendar or any of those things. None of those are important. Anybody who starts to say that these things are important are distracting you from what's really important. They're, they're throwing the metaphor up as a idol. And they're disassociating the true meaning from what you need to be doing. It says, do you teach that God has commanded... Uh, do you teach all that God has commanded... Of his true people like head covering of ladies and biblical dress for both men and ladies. Well, I don't wear a dress <laughs> if that's what you're worried about. Uh, but those aren't the important things. And, and see, that emphasis, and I didn't know that was the next line that was coming here. That emphasis shows me that this guy is missing it. And he needs to make straight the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist made it really clear. He broke it down into the most basic fundamentals. If you have two coats and your neighbor has none, share. Share wisely, of course. Do the same in meats, which means bread, etc., anything. How are you feeding the needy of your society? Do you even have a society? You just got a little home church. You don't have to feed very many people. And you probably anybody who doesn't have a job, they're out of your church. <laughs> You're not going to take care of the widows and orphans. And, and if there gets too many of them, you just dump them. Anyway, the last thing is, are you ecumenical? Will you be with all denominational people in your network? Well, uh, we'll be with Good Samaritans and others. <laughs> anyway, we're out of time. Until then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. We'll talk more of this afternoon. God bless.
You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.